0: Hi, everyone. My name is Barrett Uh It is a privilege to preach God's Word today. Um, so River City is going through the Psalms, and I, I don't know, are you going to call us the B team? We'll, 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 we'll say we're the B team. It's God's Word, so the source is excellent. Um, and so that's what we're excited about. And so we're on week seven of the Psalms, and so for all your math majors, we are preaching Psalm 7 today. Yes, very good. A for the day. So... A brief history about me is that I grew up and graduated a spud. I've now become a person. But, um, after ugh, terrible dad jokes, yeah. Um, so, but moved to the cities to become a, to grow up to become a graphic designer and found my, that's where I found my wife at, um, um, did I say I found you? I guess I found you. You found me. Whatever. We found each other. So, seven, yeah. So we found each other at uh, Hope Community Church in Minneapolis, Steve Treikler's church, if any of you know that. Um, we stayed there for a while and eventually had two kids Brevin, who is 13, and uh, Ellie, who is, or Elodia, depending on what she wants to go by on a certain day, is 11. And, yeah, so we uh, moved back here in 2014. And, have been attending River City since day one. Since, ironically, it was, again, I wouldn't call them the B team, but it wasn't the main preachers. They were going through Psalms. And it when I heard that the answer was Jesus, I'm like, I, you just fell in love. It wasn't a be moral, be good, try harder message. It was the answer was Jesus. And I'm like, nope, Aaron, we're definitely staying here. And so I loved it. So we've been here ever since. And, um, yeah, so now on to the good stuff. So if, if someone asked you, who is God to you, what would you say? Just anyone off the street, who, who is God to you? Now, there could be numerous correct answers. I mean, you could go creator, healer, savior, counselor, maybe kind of whatever you're feeling, like he is the high of, he is the ultimate of whatever that is. But what about king? Like, does that moniker does that come to you what about sovereign king so concerning our scripture for today a little bit of context is that so psalm 7 was uh, written most scholars think that psalm 7 was written while david was on the run from saul the ironic aspect of that was that saul was king and david was running from him but as he was running from that earthly king he was running towards his heavenly king he sought the help of King God. David starts his psalm with, Oh, Lord, my God. David sees God as his ultimate king, being Lord, meaning king. So the title of my sermon today is Revere the True King. And that's the conclusion I hope we can all arrive at when all is said and done. And I'll be breaking my sermon into four sections. So they are uh, the, true, or the true king's refuge, verses 1 and 2, the true king's righteousness, verses 3 to 10, the true king's reign, 11 to 16, and revere the true king in 17. So I'll be going over the, the, like the three kingly at, uh, attributes that David is, seeks as he's crying out to God, and then ending with David's conclusion. So with that, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day. Um, thank you for your common grace of your sunshine and your rain and um, just your provisions that you um, give us day in and get day out. Um, and also thank you for your saving grace, the grace that is undeniable, Father, the, the, the grace that we must rely upon. And so as I get to preach your word today, specifically about your kingly attributes, um, I pray that your word... Goes forward, that it pierces our hearts as it should, and that it resonates with us. Bless this morning to you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I'll, on to Psalm on to Psalm. <laughs> now on to Psalm seven. So all right. So I tried pronouncing this word and like even like how do you sound it out? I think it's shigan, shiga, Shigayan. We'll go with that. A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite. So the heading gives us the context of the psalm, and the word Shigeon helps us with the tone of the psalm. So Shigeon means it's composed under strong or mental emotion. So often when I read, oh, it's a song, I default to. Uh, Justin Timberlake's uh, "I Got a Feeling" or "Can't Stop the Feeling," so or if you have kids, it's the troll song. That's what I—I'm picturing David on his lute or whatever he's dancing like JT or something. But in reality, this one is more of a, a "Sounds of Silence" vibe. I mean, so if you prefer the Simon and Garfunkel version or Disturbed, you can choose whatever version. But it's definitely a heavier, heavier song, and so that's already the tone that we're that we're in for today. And the, the Cush that David is writing about is only mentioned in here, so, but he is a, a Benjamite. So that's why they're thinking he's definitely probably a follower of Saul and pursuing David. All right, so with that said, we'll read Psalm 7 in its entirety, and then we'll kind of break through the sections as we go. All right, Psalm 7. Shegeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the Lord pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and you may establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, and is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So our first point is the king's refuge. So again, the first two verses. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all of my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. So as I, start, as I stated earlier, David starts this, this heavy song, this plea, this cry, O oh Lord my God. David sees his God as his master, his king. David was declaring to God, his king, that he was inadequate to protect himself from his pursuers. He is already in the place of helplessness. He realizes that he is unable to save himself and goes to God in a distraught prayer. He realizes that no amount of experience, wit, cunning, strength, positive thinking, um, just, I can do this myself, will save him. His dependence must be upon God. God has to be the one to take him in and deliver him. And David even says... None to deliver. So not even his friends, his allies, if he has any, could save him. There's no strength in numbers in this case. It has to be God and God alone. And he goes on. He goes, as, as David even reflects upon the result of being captured by his pursuers, he knows that's not just like a, a one of reprimand or, ha-ha, I got you and I'm going to throw you in prison. It's, he compares it to be, being ravaged by lions. Now, remember, what David was a shepherd. So David, more than anybody, could utilize this metaphor and just picture the bloody mess of a lamb or a sheep being caught by a lion. Torn, limb from limb, bloodied results as that lion tears into her prey. This is, it's not just a, I'm going to be in trouble if I get caught. This is the result that David compares it to, one he has experience with. I also have much more confidence that David has ability to fend off a lion. Uh, or at least, you know, so maybe he has stared one down, or at least he, he knew maybe how to even avoid the situation. And no offense to anyone here. Uh, and I might be presuming too much, but if any of you have to fend, fend off a lion, my money would be on Mufasa, uh, uh, Lion King reference, in case you, in case I lost you. Um, so David's cry to his true king reflects his own life experience. His desperate plea is legit in its its humility, its severity, and its urgency. So, as you read this portion, have you experienced a situation so dire? Have you had an enemy pursue you to this degree with the results being so fatal? What about Satan and sin? Have you thought about the accuser in such a manner? What he seeks to do to you if he caught you. Do you see your ultimate enemy as Satan, as sin? Peter uses this very analogy in 1 Peter 5, 7 and 9. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He would be being God. Being sober-minded, be watchful, as a shepherd would with lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in this. So while you may not currently have a human Cush pursuing you, you do have an enemy pursuing you. One who will never give up, never tire, never stop, always seeking to destroy you. You're constantly being pursued and tempted with sin. So questions for this first point. Do you know this? Do you see it? If so, what are you doing about it? Like, are you, are you trying harder? Are you seeking to be saved by others? Or are you seeking refuge, like David did, in his king? And the only one that can save him. The only one that can save you. How often are you seeking refuge in him? Is it only when, okay, I see trouble ahead, I can sniff out that that lion or that enemy is downwind of me or and so i can i can i I know he's coming or boom you're just gone how often are you seeking refuge point two the true king's righteousness read reading verses three to ten O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, that you may establish the righteous. You who tests the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright heart. So as we turn to the, the righteousness focused portion of David's song, Here's where I think David's plea makes it, like, an interesting turn. Like, I was not expecting this as I was, like, reading this. David asks God to judge him. So if, if, if God finds him guilty, he, he, he's telling God to let his enemy overtake his soul, trample his life to the ground, lay his glory in the dust. Why would David do this? Why not just, God, these are my enemies— Smite away, um, or smote, smaug, how about that? Um, what, but no, he's like, he's laying his life on the line. This is a very scary request. If he is legitimately asking God for God's perfect and unbiased justice to be done, David's not innocent, David's dead. David desires to see his true king's righteousness. And David knows, David isn't, well, I can, I can fake it till you make it. I can look really good on the outside and then I can deceive God. David is acknowledging that God sees the actions of his heart and asking him to judge and act accordingly. It's no secret that, that God will, does and will judge. Even David's son Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So it's it's not a matter of God's judgment happening if, but it's definitely when. And the best example of God's justice happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. His justice was on display for all to see. As he was hanging on the cross, we saw God's wrath. His justice for the sin that we have committed poured on Christ. And yet we saw the results in an empty tomb. God was just in his dealing with sin. Sin was destroyed, and King Jesus willingly took that on and sacrificed and was killed. We also saw that perfect justice in that death could not hold Jesus because of his innocence. While he bore the penalty for our sin... Our offense to God, Jesus was not a sinner, and therefore the grave could not hold him. God's perfect and unbiased justice comes to all, and it will result in judgment the righteous and unrighteous, the righteous and the wicked. So, fellow Christians, be confident in your innocence, not because of your works but because of Christ. Philippians 8, one says, now, or, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Nothing. Not even, uh, I'm going to strain some macaroni noodles and a couple, couple condemnations fell through and we can pretend that didn't exist. Nothing. <laughs> the macaroni noodles, they all stayed in that pot. Um, there is nothing. Zero condemnation. So because David is convinced of his innocence, he is calling God to arise, calling him to action, and he is calling him to specifically act in his holy anger, anger against the fury of his enemies. And I, I find it interesting, another thing that, that stood out to me, that the verbs that David uses, of, like he says, arise, he's telling God to lift yourself up and awake. I'm like, wait a second, is David implying God is on his throne nodding off because of just boredom? I mean, he's grown tired of the Xbox One and can't wait for the new Xbox or bring on the PS5. And he wants. No, 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 no. David uses this language again in Psalm 35, 22 to 24. You have seen, O Lord. Do not be silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. So God is not a king who sleeps. When we like, okay, i got to tiptoe around on my sin. I'm going to sin here. Just don't wake the sleeping giant. Again, maybe another nerd smog of him creeping around on the gold and not wanting to wake the sleeping giant with our sin. This is not the case. David says, you have seen. God has not just set the world in motion as sitting on his throne. He sees and knows all. I also want to take a little bit of time here in verse 8. So it says, David calls himself righteous. Did that rub anyone else wrong? Or like, wait a second, that's kind of like nails on the, I won't do it. I don't have a chalkboard here. My son thanks me for that. He hates that noise. But it's just like, does that, wait a second, he's calling himself righteous. Like, David, who do you think you are? doesn't David know that he's a sinner? Yes. But David isn't saying he's righteous from a positional standpoint, but from more of a practical standpoint. Practically, David is claiming his righteousness based on his innocence in a situation. He didn't do anything wrong to Cush and company, to to Saul. Therefore, he's practically righteous. Uh, To use a dictionary's term, he is morally right in this case. Having said that, David was not claiming to be positionally righteous. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was an offense to God because of the sin that was within him. If David called upon God to hand him over to his enemies based upon being completely sinless, then find Mufasa and jump in. Uh, it's, you're dead. So no matter how good someone is, it is impossible for anyone to be positionally righteous before God, without the salvific sacrifice of Jesus removing their sins. Jesus is the only way. And we, and we see this in John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have seen my, seen, you, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. God is the perfect judge in that he not only sees our actions, but knows our intentions and motivations. At the same time, if we know we are being judged by our true intentions, hopefully this causes us to pause and reflect upon our own motivations. Everyone is judged equally. The king cannot be fooled by his self-righteous deeds. If our self righteous deeds were enough, think about it, Jesus wasted his time. The cross was useless. He did it for nothing. It's only because of Jesus that anyone can be positionally righteous before God, and it's only because the righteousness didn't originate from you. It was costly given by Jesus, by King Jesus with the crown of thorns, and it's yours for the taking. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:30- 30 30-31 states, And because of him, because of Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So again, became righteousness, sanctification and redemption from Jesus. So that, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christians aren't showing their true king their self-righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness, as that was imputed to them. Attaining Christ's righteousness is just a matter of turning from sinful self to sanctifying Savior. So the questions at the end of this one are, um, are you relying upon your self-righteousness to save you? And what is hindering you from relying upon Christ's righteousness? And now that you're saved, if you're a Christian, are you now relying upon your self-righteousness to keep you saved? Or are you relying upon Christ's righteousness that was, he said, it is finished? So, the reverse side of that, what happens without a Savior? What happens when we rely on self-righteousness, standing upon our good works apart from Jesus? What happens when we get what our good works actually deserve. That leads to the next point: the true king's reign. So, verses eleven, sixteen, and Psalm seven, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes it a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So what do our good works apart from Christ get us? That. That is what we deserve. So first off, God is patient, and it gives us finite time to repent, which is to turn from our sins and turn to him for forgiveness. But that time is finite. We don't know how long God will be patient with us. But while our God is patient, our true king feels indignation every day. So indignation is anger provoked by unfair treatment. God is righteously angry every day at the injustice of sin. Every day. But wait, it gets worse. David describes God as a king who is waiting and watching, ready to strike down those who sin against him. Again, God hates sin. Verses 12 and 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He'll sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So to put it another way, King Jesus will sharpen his broadsword. Sparks will be flying. Each pass of the blade down the whetstone signifies another fatal strike to the heart of those who sin. His bow is not sitting next to him, but in his hands with the offender in sight. Arrows will find their targets. Fire, which no armor can withstand. This is what comes to those who refuse from turning from God's patience with our deliberate sinness as acceptance, God's reign will not be tainted by man's pestilence. So, if you're like, "Well, okay, that's that's the mean and angry God. Okay, that's like Old Testament wrath stuff." But now, the New Testament is Jesus loving and whatever. Revelation nineteen eleven through sixteen describes Jesus's wrath. Eleven. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judge and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on the robe of his thigh has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the king that David's praying to, that he's calling out to. Most of us, again, picture Jesus as a teacher, calm and collected um, maybe sitting with kids or holding a lamb, and maybe even on a cross. But most of us don't immediately think of like Jesus as this warrior king riding a horse with eyes like fire, wearing a robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of his mouth in order to strike down the nations and rule them. Not only will Jesus bring justice in such a violent manner, but we have heaped God's wrath upon ourselves. 14 through 16, Behold, the the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. We don't just, whoops, I fell into evil. We conceive it. We are intentional about it. We seek it out. We desire mischief. What we bring about are lies and deceit. We are just agents of evil. We're following the prince of this world, and I'm not talking the prince of peace. This is the prince of darkness. We enjoy doing what Satan does best, and that's deceive one another. To deny this is to call God a liar. First John 1.10 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When we believe we are fooling everyone and gaining status in life or getting away with the desires of our deception, we are actually just digging our own grave. We are deceiving ourselves with our own cleverness. We are doing the physical work of making our own trap, one that we fall into, and we're surprised when we fell into it. It's because of our pride. Our pride will bury us, and we did the hard work to make sure it happens. We do this to ourselves. We want the thrill. We want the sin. And we arrogantly call out to our true king and dare him to act. He will respond by giving us what we wanted. Nothing is scarier than getting what we actually deserve. Because what we deserve is death. God has given up entire nations to their desires. He's given up his chosen people due to their sin. Look at the siege of Jerusalem. Because of the wanton rebellion of the people of Judah... God used a more evil nation, Babylon, to come in and and overthrow them. Judah knew they were defying God, yet they chose to. God, in turn, gave them into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. They were acting as though they were kings of their own destiny. Romans addresses, again, this is not just an Old Testament thing. Romans addresses this one twenty-eight, and then I... To abbreviate, 32, and then 2, 3 through 5 should be on the screen. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind what, to what ought not be done. They, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume that to be on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up judgment, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, The song King Nothing by Metallica, I know a great Christian band, addresses the concept of getting what you desire. A portion of the lyrics reads, careful what you wish, careful what you say. Careful what you wish, you may regret it. Careful what you wish, you just might get it. Then it all crashes down, you break your crown, point your finger but there's no one around. Just want one thing to play the king. But the castle's crumbled, and you're left with just a name. Where's your crown, king? Nothing. So even a band who's not professed Christ as king sings about humanity getting what it wants. Do you actually want the results of your desires? Do you want to have the true king give you up to the results of your sin? Do you desire God's wrath? Is God calling you to repent? Of course. In his patience he is. Turn and seek him. Seek his refuge. Attain his righteousness. We saw, again, the bloodied results of our sin upon the cross. That Jesus became a pulpy, bloodied mess. Mocked, hit, bruised, scarred, beaten, bludgeoned, flogged, impaled, suffocated, and killed. This is what our sin, all of our sin deserves. Not just the, the, the sin that you deem heinous. All of it. This is what humanity deserves. This isn't what our king deserved. This is the length that our true king went through to save you, to call you to himself, to redeem you, to show his great and perfect love. The questions for this point, does that cause you to be even more thankful to Jesus? Do you feel your guilt in direct proportion to God's grace? And that God's grace trumps your guilt. Are you legitimately thankful because of the gospel? That you were saved while you were still a sinner? And this leads us to David's action point. As a result of David crying out his circumstances, this is evil. What does David do? He reveres the true king. 17 says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. I love that this is how David ends his psalm. Even though it's still in a minor key, sounding like the sounds of silence, he ends with praising the true king, not because of God has already saved him or He provides means of whatever he's already seen and done, and he's looked back and reflecting upon it. He's praising him because he's a righteous king. He doesn't know how this life situation is going to end, but it's not going to deter him from singing praises to God. He's still in the midst of it, but he's genuinely thankful to his true king. So, as a result of his earthly king, as his king Saul, who should be protecting him, being his refuge, pointing him to his ultimate savior, David seeks his, the true and ultimate king. He seeks his king's refuge, his righteousness, and his reign, which led to his reverence. So, going back to my opening question and last question do you see God as your king? I pray that a result of Psalm 7, you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself in this way. For giving us a hope that we do not deserve. A hope that is, that will come to fruition. That we can go to you for our refuge. That we, can, that we know you are righteous, you are unbiased, that you want perfection, and that you reign over this world. And it's just a matter of time before your patience will lead to your holy and just wrath. Thank you for giving us that time to turn and repent. Thank you for pursuing us so that we do so. I'd ask that you would call us to yourself, And that we would be convicted of our sin, whether that we're Christians or non-Christians, we would be convicted and turn to you and we would abide in you. Thank you for you. Thank you for loving us first. In your name we pray. Amen.